You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, David. Hi, Bob. How are you? Can't complain. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thank you. Thank you. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available both via streaming video and uh, as audio podcaster. David Brophy, uh, Senior Lecturer in Modern History at the University of Sydney in Australia, where you are. Um, And I'm really looking forward to this conversation uh, because, you know, we've uh, all heard a lot, I think, about uh, what the Chinese government uh, is doing uh, to uh, the Uyghur population in Xinjiang, in Western China. Um, But I have to say, I still don't have a super clear picture of exactly what's going on there. Uh I'm, I'm, uh, and, and I don't have a, a super clear picture of what the Chinese government's uh, motivations and goals are. So to the extent that we can, I'd like to shed light on those. And I have to say, you're one of the um, few people I think I've talked to. Maybe you're the only person I've talked to who can claim to be something of an expert on this part of uh, China. You wrote a book uh, published by Harvard University Press called Uyghur Nation, Reform and Revolution on the on the Russia-China Frontier. Um, so, uh you know, why don't we start out by just um, asking you to give us a little background that um, would maybe help understand why this is happening at all. So this is a a part of China that I gather was brought, came under Chinese rule uh, as long ago as the 18th century, but has remained for a long time pretty ethnically distinct, uh, mm-hmm. big Turkic speaking population, mm-hmm. which is what the Uyghurs are. They are Muslims by and large. Um, what else would you need to know about the recent history of the area to to start putting this whole thing in context? Right. So you, you're correct to say that this is um, this is a region that was uh, incorporated into the Qing Empire into the in the 18th century, and they, the Qing exercised a pretty hands off form of rule for most of that. Um, you know, the subsequent century. Um, and they lost control of it, um, a few times. Uh, hmm. there was a, <clears throat> there was a, a slight turn in policy towards the end of the 19th century when they tried as a sort of a last ditch effort to integrate this region into the empire to pursue a more, um, a policy of direct rule, a more assimilationist cultural policy with some similarities. You could argue with the, the situation that we, we face today, but of course the Qing then was a very weak state, um, and ultimately, you know, fell apart itself, um, within a few years. Xinjiang was then, um, you could say independent for much of the first half of the, the 20th century, but, but independent in Chinese hands. That's to say it was, was governed by Chinese officials who were, <clears throat> trying to really insulate this region from the political turmoil of the, the Chinese interior. So it was only really in the 1940s that parties like the Nationalist Party had much of a presence or control in the, um, in the region. Now, there were also bids for uh, independence on the part of the local population at that time. So there were a couple of efforts to establish a, um, an East Turkestan Republic, now, this term East Turkestan is quite important. Um, East Turkestan obviously implies a West Turkestan. Um, and generally speaking, this, this area that we sometimes call Central Asia, 
part of it falling within the Russian Empire and then becoming part of the Soviet Union. Um, so all the Stans, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, that's what's generally recognized as West Turkestan. Um, and East Turkestan is this part that's um, ended up inside China. And culturally, linguistically, historically, uh, Xinjiang has um, a lot in common with those regions that are now uh, that are now independent. Um, so you could say that you know the fall of the Soviet Union and the um, the emergence of these independent republics was a was a fairly significant event in the, the history of the the wider region. Um, <clears throat> now, the um, on the eve of the the Red Army's um, intrusion into Xinjiang, there was actually a Soviet back. And, and this is when roughly. Well, they didn't really get out there until 1949. Um, at that time, the the region was a province technically mm-hmm. um, of the Chinese Republic, but there had been for the, the preceding few years, there'd been a Soviet backed uprising in the North that had created the second East Turkestan Republic, um, which certainly expressed a lot of local aspirations for autonomy and self-government, but was also um, very much tied to Soviet foreign policy. <clears throat> so it, Stalin's policy was then to push the, the the leadership of this East Turkestan Republic into negotiation with the um, the Chinese communists. Hmm. Um, so <clears throat> that was um, essentially what led to this um, region being incorporated into the um, the People's Republic of China without too much of a fight. Um, it's not to say there wasn't some local resistance, um, but generally speaking, the um, the, the the local elite. Um, you know, those who were aligned with the nationalists fled um, the region um, as the um, the nationalists did elsewhere. And what you had then was, a, 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 you know, local political elite, many of whom were members, in fact, of the, the Soviet Communist Party, um, you know, identified with that. Um, so, so the ones who had aligned, <laughs> the ones who had aligned with the losing side of the Civil War, yeah. side yeah. that wound up in Taiwan, sure. kind of yeah. left. And so yep. you had uh, you, you were left with elites who were pretty aligned with the communists at mm. that point. Mm. And, and, yeah, now, I mean they they had aspirations. Um, there was a, a difficult negotiation in the 1950s because I mean these were people who were hoping possibly to emerge with something like a Soviet Republic of Uzbekistan or, or something like that. And the fact was that the the nationalities policy of the Chinese Communist Party was um even more centralizing than the, in the case of the Soviet Union. So they weren't willing to go that far um to grant that level of autonomy. So, so what you so end up with the beginning, kind of compromise. So from the mm. beginning were the Uyghurs kind of hoping for more in the way of autonomy than wound up being uh acceptable from the point of view of the Chinese government. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think that's fair to say. And and so in the middle of the 1950s, when you had this nationwide campaign, um, the anti-rightist campaign, it was known as elsewhere in China, this really turned into a campaign against local nationalism in which a lot of these Uyghur elites who'd been associated with the, the second East Turkestan Republic, they were, they were marginalized, sidelined, um, because many of them did have these aspirations to, to, work within the system, but carve out a greater level of autonomy than they were um, being mm-hmm. offered by the party at that time. Now, it is still called, is it not technically, the 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 Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous mm. Region? Is that the technical name? That is exactly the, the, the technical name, yeah, the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Um, but... But the Chinese don't want to accept all the connotations of that, I gather, the Chinese government. 
Well, the term autonomy here isn't necessarily what you or I might understand by autonomy. Um, the autonomous regions, they do have the ability to pass local legislation that differs from um, the rest of China, but any 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 such legislation has to be approved by the center. Um, so effectively voiding um, their ability to, um, uh, you know, to, to diverge from um, the, mm-hmm. the will of the center. Um, there's certain cultural provisions in the constitution that, um, you know, technically allow non-Chinese populations to, um, to promote their culture and, and preserve their language. Um, and there's been certain, um, Affirmative action measures um, to, for example, facilitate entry into higher education. Uh, up until recently, there was um, uh, less enforcement of the um, uh, you know, birth control policies. Um, and these are the types mm-hmm. of things that are being eroded now uh, in the current situation right. where people feel that a lot of this stuff, you know, some of it looks quite, you know, reasonable on paper has really become a dead letter. Um, right. as the, the pendulum has really swung in the direction of assimilationism. That, that last point <laughs> is kind of ironic. I, I mean, the, the, uh, there's an allegation now, uh, that there is, um, coerced sterilization or some, mm. uh, form mm. of, of, you know, population growth suppression of that mm. sort mm. until not that long ago. It was kind of the other way around. In other words, the Han Chinese were subjected to a limit mm. of, I think, one child per family for a long time. The Uyghurs correct. were exempt from that. But is that yeah, correct? I mean, there was there was a certain latitude. So in the cities, um, generally speaking, you know, non-Chinese pe- people were able to have more than one child. Um, and in the countryside, there was really no limits um, at at all. And it is it is ironic because, of course, China is now very anxious about its um you know the the demographic situation and the aging population, and so they mm-hmm. are moving towards a, a complete relaxation of any um, uh, any um, you know population control measures. But um, in Xinjiang, it's it's gone in the other direction that they have started to enforce this um, this policy. Um, the um, now, it, can I just as long as we're there, yeah. I, I don't want to get deeply yeah. yet into the question of like what exactly is going right. on there, but. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I mean, as you know, a couple of terms that are being used are cultural genocide and mm. genocide. Mm. So far as I can tell, the, uh, the genocide, uh, claim seems to be tied to the idea of coerced sterilization. I mean, to the extent that I can, mm. I haven't looked into it deeply. Mm. But do, do we know that, that that is going on? I mean, one thing you've said is that, that the Uyghurs yeah. are now, have now been brought, uh, under the, same restrictions applied to the Han population in terms of birth, but is there not something beyond that uh, going on or do we just not know for sure? I mean, is there anything the Chinese government is acknowledging uh, or at least that we have reason to believe is happening? Oh, I mean, they're very open about the fact that they are, um, they are um, promoting the, um, the use of, uh, you know, sterilization techniques and um, IUDs and, but um, coercively, so, I, I mean, it's, well, it's, it, it, it's involuntarily in a, applied. You're in a situation, I think, where it's very hard to say no um, in these in this environment, and uh, there's various forms of pressure um, that are applied um, to to people. And you know, um, opting out or showing a you know recalcitrance towards these types of campaigns is something that could very easily land someone in, um, you know, under the eye of the. Um, 
you know, the security state mm-hmm. at, at the moment. And I think that's borne out by some of the testimony that has come out of, you know, women who've been able to um, get uh, out of Xinjiang, you know, women who, you know, we would probably consider to be, you know, past childbearing age are still, um, you know, still being, um, still having this pressure applied to them to, um, to go and, um, you know, have these devices inserted and, and, and so on. And, and just to, are these women who have had children but reached what is deemed the limit throughout China? Or are they, are they saying to some women, if you're a Uyghur, you can't have kids at all? Or do we know? Well, no, it's, it is, it's, there's a, there's a limit. Um, and, you know, I should say that the limit is still, um, it's higher than one child. So it's two in the cities, three in the, um, three in the countryside. Um, and it's but, at that point uh, that the sterilization is, there's pressure will, to sterilize. Will kick in, yeah. And does yeah. that happen and, to other populations as well or just the Uyghurs? Oh, this, this does, um, occur elsewhere in China, certainly. Um, what we're seeing in terms of the, the sort of the high numbers, um, in this, um, in this region reflects the fact that this is, been a sharp turn to apply this policy in uh, in places where it it has not been applied or has been only um, um, intermittently uh, applied in in the past, and so that's why it's being felt as such a you know significant impact on the um, um, on the Uyghur and other non Han communities. And then you also have to take into account the fact that in this you know political turmoil that um, the pro- the region has been through in the last three four years, that is going to deter people from having children as well so you you do then the combined effect then is has been a significant noticeable drop in the birth rate in the um the region um okay so so to get back to the history you know i gather uh, that that some sort of uh, nationalist or separatist impulse must have persisted or resurfaced mm. because if i think if you ask the government why do you have to crack down on these people they will say mm. These are separatists. They're trying to tear the country apart. They've been associated with terrorists and so on, right? Right. Yeah. The, the dominant sort of motivating discourse around this policies is very much associated with primarily with counter, with, with terrorism, um, justified in terms of counterterrorism. But in the background, of course, you have the more, um, long running anxiety about, uh, what they call separatism, um, and efforts to, you know, efforts to remove Xinjiang from the fold and create some sort of mm-hmm. um, Uyghur, um, Uyghur state, um, and that that sort of sentiment certainly does exist um, in uh, in Xinjiang. Um, it's uh, it's been something that the um, there's been a sort of a alternation between hardline, softline policies uh, for for a long time now. Um, there was a, there was a string of, um, violent incidents in 2014, which seems to have been the moment that the hardliners, um, really got the upper hand at this point. And the, the more sort of gradualist approaches to assimilating the population, you know, cultivating an identification with the Chinese state and the Chinese language, uh, and so on, um, the party state really ran out of patience on that front. And, um, has clearly decided that a much more fast paced, coercive, um, approach to this, um, ideological indoctrination and, and cultural assimilation is, um, is, is necessary to resolve this, uh, situation. And was the, was the kind of shift in policy a response to specific terrorist acts, uh, you know, I mean, I, I gather, I, I, like, they don't, you don't have a lot of, like, uh, 
you know, AK-47s floating around among civilians in China. I, g- no. I gather uh, the, the one big attack I've read about was was like a, a knife attack involving mm, a lot right. of people, right? They managed to, I guess, kill a couple of dozen people with knives, which isn't that easy. But what? what sure. Uh, what? Yeah. No, you're, you're, you're totally right. It is a very demilitarized place. Um, this is not the kind of place where people have, have guns. Um, and it's also not the kind of place where people have much space to organize, um, and, you know, build opposition networks, um, around any form of politics, be it violent or nonviolent. Um, the, the Uyghurs just have not really had much space to breathe. Um, but in, you know, you do occasionally have these incidents which are, very hard to connect to any kind of organization. Um, but were, you know, 2013, 2014, you had a couple of incidents of people, you know, driving cars into crowds, um, uh, then setting off homemade bombs. The, 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 the knife attack you refer to, uh, that's, you're probably referring to the incident in Kunming in the south of China. Um, where, I mean, the circumstances are often a little bit vague because we don't really have, um, the ability to, you know, there isn't, investigative journalism that that can really get to the bottom of these um these incidents but it's it's possible that these were people um heading towards southeast asia as a way to claim asylum um got got stuck in south china and were somehow um you know recruited to this this plan to to go on a you know a, a knife attack at the the train station you know so these are this is quite a shocking um event i mean we shouldn't downplay the fact that, you know, ordinary Chinese civilians, um, have lost their lives, um, in these, uh, in these incidents. But, um, what the Chinese government has done with this is to, to construct a, a framework in which almost any kind of political opposition, uh, is deemed, um, to be terrorism. So mm. you'll read these reports saying, you know, in the past 20 years, there's been, you know, thousands of um, incidents or thousands of terrorists have been um, rounded up. Um, and this, you know, this often includes events that uh, look like much more spontaneous conflicts over to do with um, development issues, land disputes, um, or, you know, outbreaks of, you know, communal violence, such as we saw in 2009 um, in um, the, the regional capital uh, of, of Urumqi. Now, there are people abroad in places like Syria or um, um, possibly also in Pakistan, Afghanistan. It's, it's hard to say. You know, there are people there who've come out of Xinjiang and have some notion that they might be able to receive some military training and one day um, go back to China and do something. I mean, I think it's pretty far-fetched, actually. China really has quite uh, a lockdown um, on the, the entries and exits from the, the region. Sometimes these groups will claim responsibility for something that, that happens inside China, but no one's ever really been able to, you know, demonstrate much connection between what goes on outside and what goes on inside. Okay. So before we turn to the, uh, the whole internment issue, um, yeah. the, uh, do you have a take on how sincere the government is in claiming that its motivation is fear of terrorism and separatism? I mean, you know, mm. I live in the United States. I have mm. seen governments overreact to terrorism by my lights, mm. at least. You know, yeah. like I have seen what I considered a very disproportionate response that uh, was, you know, 
was kind of deeply felt in a sense. I mean, I mean, who knows what's yeah. going, what they're actually thinking in the councils of government, but the American yeah. people were kind of on board, right? They were like, yeah, mm. this seems about right. And, mm. and so, um, do you have a sense? I mean, what do you think the actual agenda of the Chinese government is? Is it mm. what they say? We, we don't want, we don't want, uh, mm. terror. We don't like terrorism and we don't want a big, mm. a, a chunk of the country breaking off. Or is there a, a kind of a, a broader agenda here or what? Right. I mean, I, I think that, I think that what you just said is, is relevant to this, this situation. I mean, I, I, I do think that this falls within a, you know, the, uh, and there's a lot of family resemblance here, I think, to the way that governments all around the world have responded to this issue of terrorism in the last 20 years. And I think that it's created a, um, you know, a security and policy elite in many countries who may well feel that this is, this is necessary and justified and, and that, um, the, um, you know, and I, and so I think it's very hard to say exactly what is going on in the minds of Chinese officials, but I, I, I would imagine that some of them really do, um, believe that this is all necessary to prevent, um, you know, the descent of, of Xinjiang into, you know, more, more violent, state but it, it dovetails with a lot of other objectives um that have been discussed for some time even leaving aside the question of of terrorism there's been a a dissatisfaction among policy elites in china with the existing framework of nationalities policy um hmm. this idea that the system of autonomous regions now i just talked about the fact that it doesn't really grant much autonomy at all. Well, in the eyes of certain policymakers, the problem is that it gives too much autonomy, right? And this, these structures have prevented the integration and the, the, the intermingling of the various different um, ethnic groups of China to form some kind of um, unified Chinese nation, which has always been, um, always been the objective. And, um, you know, 10 years ago, there was an open policy debate on this, on this question and the idea of simply abolishing these autonomous regions and doing away with some of the, the structures that, 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 you know, granted certain, you know, nominal privileges to, to non-Chinese groups and, and so on. Um, on the basis that this distinctive national identity that was being preserved within this framework was becoming a national security issue. Um, right now, that was actually a quite a sensitive discussion to have because it really went to the heart of the, the Chinese constitution and the, you know, the, the policies that were laid down um, by Mao and, you know, his comrades. And, and ultimately the party decided that they couldn't, they didn't want to change this. You know, they didn't want to admit that there was a problem there, but on the ground, you've seen a lot of shifts in, in the direction of this, um, this, what they call the second generation nationalities policy. And this goes beyond <clears throat> the Uyghurs. I mean, there are a number of minority Oh, uh, ethnic yeah. populations uh, and and is the government broadly speaking trying to do what it might call assimilation but other people might call you know kind of wiping out a cultural heritage well i don't i mean i think that the the case of the Uyghurs is the um is the extreme case at the moment and it is okay. a sort of a testing ground for these sorts of policies but it is a there's a general mood i think within chinese officialdom um, that is out of patience with tolerance for too much ethnic diversity. Um, and is, you know, you, you see incidents crop up, um, 
in places that have been relatively quiet um, over the past few decades. So, for example, Inner Mongolia, which is regarded by the party as a relatively safe space. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, They don't see the, the types of issues there that they see in Xinjiang. But nonetheless, there has been moves recently to uh, to restrict the scope of Mongolian language um, schooling. Um, and that's provoked a response from um, from local Mongols who, who feel that, you know, they can look at a place like Xinjiang and see where the direction right. of this kind of policy might um, I've heard that might, there's, might there, there's even uh, some Mongolian parents have kept their children out of school in protest in some cases because they've they've restricted, they've, they've basically increased the ratio of Han mm. Chinese instruction that's right. Yeah. In Mongolian language instruction. Um, yeah, that's right. So, um, okay. So, uh, what would you say is their ultimate, um, goal? I mean, do they, do they want to, uh, sever the connection of the Uyghur people to their native language and to Islam, for example, in the extreme case? Mm. Look, I, I do think that the, the, the long-term future of the Uyghur language is now in some danger um, because I think it is being increasingly stigmatized and marginalized from public spaces. Now, it's not to say that it is being completely banned. Um, you know, if you go into a bookshop in Xinjiang, you'll still find books um, in, in Uyghur. Um, there is certainly a very stringent policing of the kinds of historical and cultural narratives that you'll find um, in those books. Um, so the the space that's existed for the last sort of 20 years or so in which intellectuals have been able to kind of negotiate a, a distinctive set of, you know, national narratives, you know, folk heroes, um, you know, the, the sorts of symbols of Uyghur culture that, um, you know, um, may serve as points of pride and, you know, inspiration for, for maintaining a distinctive Uyghur identity in the face of this uh, pressure from the Chinese state, that is, that has really come under attack um, mm. in the, the, so we've seen things like, you know, people who edited textbooks of um, Uyghur literature for, for school children um, being arrested and given life sentences because the, mm. the, you know, all of a sudden this material, which was published with government approval 20 years ago, has been found to contain, you know, dangerous, um, subversive messages. Um, which which again, consists, it, it sounds to me like the message is an attempt to sustain the kind of the national mythology of a, of a, of a people. I mean, nations yeah, have national sure, mythology. Totally. So, it, so it's like totally. it's like if yeah. somebody tried to convince us that George Washington wasn't a great guy, which as it happens, yeah. a lot of people are trying to do, but that's kind of a coincidence. Yeah. The- no, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, on the question of Islam, I think it's worth talking about for a second as well. I mean, it's, I, I think it would be too much to say that China is trying to eradicate Islam. Um, but one of the slogans that they've raised in the context of this campaign is the signification um, of Islam, the signification of all religion in China, actually, but signification of Islam in particular and that is um, that is this notion that Islam is potentially out of line with Chinese values, the values of Chinese civilization, and there needs to be some kind of process um, of um, you know integrating these things. And so, anything um, associated with Islam that hints too much at the you know the foreign connections, um, the, the the sort of the wider cultural world that Uyghurs participate in by virtue of being Muslims, 
that is coming, um, that is becoming, you know, uh, that is deemed suspicious. I will give you an example. When I was in Xinjiang in 2017, I was driving around and I, I saw some commercial buildings that um, just as a sort of a touch of Islamic architecture had little domes on top of them. I saw people up there with sledgehammers, you know, smashing mm-hmm. these domes because um, they, they didn't want the landscape or the, 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 the built environment to, to give off these connotations that you were in some different kind of space that, you know, and these, were, these were just ornaments stuff. on non-religious buildings, just ornaments on commercial buildings. Yeah. Um, so that's the level at which this is being policed. Um, and then, of and, course, you know, there are the uh, there are satellite photos that seem to show that where there once were mosques, there are not mosques. What's your sense right. for that? I mean, I, I, I gather those that's reliable evidence. You have um, a sense for the scale of this or what? Yeah. So some of those satellite photos, <clears throat> you need to, um, you know, you need to look closely at some of these. Um, there's been cases um, I've been aware of, for example, where, you know, people have claimed that an entire mosque has been demolished. What, what has happened in some of those cases is there might be a mosque and then a more recent architectural addition that has a more, you know, South Asian or Middle Eastern style archway or that kind of thing. And that is what's been demolished. Um, but it is the case that some mosques have been, um, closed or renovated, turned into, I mean, there's a case in Kashgar I know of where it was turned into a cafe. Um, there's been a recent report of a mosque in um, in the north, in Ili, that's been turned into a hotel. The The other thing that's been going on is the, you know, the, the erasure of shrines. Um, and I think possibly more so than mosques, it's these, um, it's these Sufi shrines that mm. have been these gathering points Um some of them, you know, would host very large collective gatherings, say, at a particular point in the year. Um, people would sort of go out into the, often in remote locations. Um, there's been a, a, a gradual sort of tightening around these sites. Um, so you started to see some of them being closed off. Um, you know, if you went out to them, police might stop you on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm basically trying to discourage people from, um, visiting these places, but now it does seem to be the case that some of these have actually been um, destroyed. I mean, that's judging now, from the satellite Sufi, imagery. That's, is Sufi, mm. is Sufi isn't the dominant strain of Islam there, is it, or is it? Well, I mean, when you're talking about Central Asia, um, it's very hard to disentangle, um, you mm-hmm. know, Sufism from Islam more generally because it really has been the dominant tradition within, mm. you know, Orthodox Islamic practice. Um, for, you know, you could say for sort of certainly for the last seven, eight hundred years. I mean, the region uh, to a large extent was converted to Islam by the activities of Sufi missionaries who are out mm-hmm. on the frontier, you know, going and, you know, converting the non-Muslims and so on. And, um, you know, the Islamic rulers in that region would all patronize um, Sufi brotherhoods. At certain points, the Sufi brotherhoods have actually held some political power um, in this, in this region too. Um, now, of course, Sufism, as in the rest of the Islamic world, it, it, it was, um, it was critiqued by reformers and modernists from the, you know, the early 20th century onwards. So you couldn't say that Sufism is, you know, as prominent, um, as, uh, you know, it was say a hundred years ago, but some of these Sufi brotherhoods survive. And this, this practice of shrine pilgrimage is something that is very popular, whether or not people even think of it as, 
a form of Sufism or not. You know, mm-hmm. you, you talk to people and you, you ask them about Sufism and they'll say, you know, what? Um, but it's just, it's just what you do, um, as a, <clears throat> as a Muslim in this, okay. um, in this region, particularly in the South, which is full of these, um, full of these shrines. Okay. So is the government's goal, I mean, I gather with Christianity, there are government approved Christian churches and mm. then there are congregations that meet secretly because they wouldn't mm. meet with government approval? I mean, mm. the, the, is it trying to create an officially approved version of Islam that uh, is accommodating to its needs? Is d- Does that seem to be the goal? Yeah, so that's been, um, I mean, it's been the case for quite some time now that, um, you know, um, the, the mosques, mosques required mosques approval. Require right. approval and, right. you know, the imams are supposed to have now it's, it's not it's not the case that this always applies but there are these training institutes that you know um imams are you know ideally supposed to to go through um and there is you know there is monitoring of the sermons and um you know recently you know they've instituted practices like sort of registering people as they go in to pray mm-hmm. um i think that's having an effect of deterring people from visiting the mosque because you know you don't want to get a reputation as someone who is too devout too hmm. you know too pious and um so so yes i mean it's it as part of this this idea of the signification of islam there is this um because of course Uyghur islam you know, there are Islamic traditions, you know, there are Chinese speaking Muslims, there are, you know, Islam is, exists all throughout, um, all throughout China. And you have these, um, communities of Chinese speaking Muslims, for example, who are, I mean, they do receive some of the same suspicion from officials, but the fact that they practice their religion primarily through, with the much greater use of Chinese language, for example, that's sort of being held up as a, you know, as a, as a better model than hmm. this this Uyghur Islam, which is, you know, looks too foreign um, well, from the so, point of view of yeah, Chinese. So I, um, I was going to ask, uh, uh, what, how would Islam in Xinjiang have to change to meet with the approval of the government? It sounds like one thing is it would prefer that they spoke Chinese when they practice it, right? I mean, the, the government would much prefer that. Uh, and well, and uh, what... Is there a short answer to the question of what would the, how would the government like the practice of Islam to, I mean, I'm sure they would like zero explicitly political content that sure. has the vaguest connotation of separatism, of course. Sure. Uh, yeah. it sounds like they'd rather these people speak Han, uh, uh, Chinese. Um, mm. what else? That's a really interesting question. Um, I've read some articles that lay out a really you know, really ambitious, um, almost unbelievably sort of um, syncretic idea of what, you know, what a signified Islam should look like. I mean, people talking about how, you know, this should be taking things from Chinese traditions like Confucianism and Taoism and so on. And to me, that's just, I find it really implausible that they could ever really... um, attempt something like that um so in terms of the doctrinal level it's 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 hard to really get a grip on what's going on there at the moment in terms of um you know but there have been um you know we know that there are 
for example, commentaries on the Quran that were produced by Uyghur scholars of Islam that were, you know, had approval to be published and so on that have been um, removed from circulation. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, newer commentaries being produced. And then people kind of have to go through and say, okay, well, what's, what's the difference here? Um, you know, what didn't they like about those earlier editions and so on? Um, it's, it's sort of, it, it, it can be sort of quite, um, difficult to, to really get a grip on. And, and they're not really saying very much, um, in terms of how they really want to, um, you know, shape the interpretation of these, these religious texts at the moment. So it's a really good question, but I don't have a, a great answer to it at the moment. Okay. So you mentioned people not wanting to get a reputation as for being too devout. And I, and I gather mm. one reason is that's a way to wind up being involuntarily confined. I, I mean, right. so, yeah. uh, there, there are these things that the government refers to as education or, uh, camps or whatever. And, and, and mm. they have, you know, the, the, I saw somewhere a report where they let a camera, a camera person in to view what looked, you know, like a classroom. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I mean, uh, that's their version of what's going yeah. on in there. Of course, right. that's that was what they chose to show the camera person. But but it yeah. seems there are a few questions like, so what is going on inside these things? A, yeah. on how large a scale is it happening? How many people yeah. uh, are forced into them? How much time do they spend there? And then also uh, the one, I, the thing I started with, what are the criteria for selecting people yeah. who are confined? I've heard that, yeah, you know, we know that the, that the Chinese government is, you know, not shy about uh, surveillance, uh, mm. does a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, record keeping in terms of what uh, its citizens are up to. And I mm. gather that like if your family, uh, you know, has bought three copies of the Quran in the last month, that's the kind of thing that might, mm might get you in trouble, so, but maybe I'm wrong. You t- what right. do we know, uh, first of all, on the criteria yeah. for confinement? Okay. Right. So the um, the Chinese state has moved from this, and it's, it's an evolution that policing practices um, around the world have actually undergone. It's just that China is really taking the application um, to extreme, but this this idea, and to me, it's really a sort of a bogus pseudoscience, but this de-radicalization discourse that you can, you can identify people who might be entering onto a pathway to radicalization by certain changes in their behavior, um, or so on. So that's one set of, um, factors, for example. So indications that you're becoming more pious, that you're, if you've given up alcohol or you're not smoking anymore, or you're, um, you know, even just showing a sort of a, a disinterest in, you know, what the party and government is saying, you know, so people, if you're not, if you don't have a radio at home, if you don't watch the, the TV news, um, these are kinds of things that can attract, um, attract suspicion. Um, the, there is, you know, certainly, uh, a lot of this is also to do with connections internationally. So if you've traveled abroad or if you've sent your children um, to study abroad uh, and particularly, again, this is where the, the sort of the Islamophobia comes in, you know, particularly if it's been to uh, Islamic countries or countries mm-hmm. that are identified as, you know, um, uh, places where people get, get radicalized. Um, so those are some of the things that have affected the, the population broadly at the level of the intellectual and political elite, there's been a, there's been a sort of a Stalinist witch hunt, um, for people who are 
you know, they might be party members, but they're regarded, come to be regarded as, you know, insufficiently loyal. Um, the word for these people is two-faced people. That is to say, they might, they might say the right thing when they're at work or at a meeting or something, but then they go home and then they, you know, so they these are Muslim, the these are Uyghur, so. Muslim Uyghur elites who uh, purport to be, you know, what you might say faithful yeah, citizens, yeah. but are now yeah. under suspicion. And there's more and more kind of, yeah. I guess, informal, <laughs> kind of searching for them in a sense. Oh, right. Yeah, like the sense yeah. that you should be alert for these, uh, these turncoats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of natural in a sense that there'd be this kind of scapegoating, um, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, how could, how could, how could this situation have gotten out of hand? It must be because there are these, um, people inside the system who are white anting it, um, from within. And so, yeah, it's fall, mm-hmm. the sufficient falls in on these, um, these academics, these, party members and so on. Not exclusively Uyghur, I should say. I mean, there are people from the other communities who've, who've ended up um, branded in the same way as, um, as, as disloyal. Um, yeah, these are, these are, you know, this so, has also led to disappearance. Um, of so so yeah. on the criteria for confinement, it sounds like, uh, you know, they're, 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 uh, uh, you know, I can't believe that they think that the criteria they're using, you know, family members traveling abroad, buying Qurans and so on are, are kind of, you know, definitive evidence of, of subversive activity. But mm. but their thinking is just kind of statistically, if we cast the net this wide, we'll get a lot of people who, from our point of view, need to be dealt with in some sense. Now, the question is, what is the dealing with consist of? Right. Do you have a very clear idea of... The extent to which uh, what is going on in there is, uh, uh, I mean, do you have any sense what's going on in there? I mean, I mean, I assume that yeah. they actually do want to, they want them to speak more Chinese and less uh, and less mm. of their native language. Mm. So, so I gather there is Chinese language instruction or something. But do you have any any yeah. sense for what's going on? What the actual conditions of living on or <laughs> any well, any of that? They do they do talk quite openly about the sort of the the kind of curriculum that exists in these, um, in these centers, because, you know, as I've, as I've touched on, they regard what they're doing as part of this global war on terror. And they see themselves as learning from and applying the lessons that they they take from, you know, de-radicalization campaigns elsewhere. And so they do talk about um, what people are getting in these, um, in these uh, in these camps, so one element, yes, the Chinese language. Um, so, not speaking Chinese is another factor that might, you know, hmm. make you more likely to end up in these um, in these camps. And it seems to be that improving your Chinese to a certain level was a way that people felt was, you know, likely to allow them to eventually get out. Um, but also, um, political so like, ideological. So like, just to be clear, so passing a Chinese yeah. language proficiency exam. Could hasten the day when you are released. That from seems the- to have been part mm-hmm. of the, yeah, part of the, um, because the, it's probably the case that the high point of these detentions has now passed. Um, there have been increasingly, you know, you hear from, you know, Uyghur contacts, you know, family members have been getting out and periods of detention of around about two years seems to have been, um, quite common. Now, not not everyone by any any stretch is is out yet. Um, but so then, you, aside from language, you've got the this, the political ideological education, and this is, I mean, this is partly just about drumming in 
loyalty to the party, love for the party, um, and, you know, opposition to anything the party deems to be harmful. It's, it's about, you know, the, the party has this notion that Uyghurs have been too cut off from the Chinese mainstream. So they simply don't know enough about the Chinese constitution, Chinese laws and, and so on. And, and people need to be brought up to speed on, um, on that kind of thing. That seems to have been the focus initially as the criticism of these policies um, increased and the, um, you know, the party had to come out and, and defend them internationally. The emphasis shifted to this idea of vocational training, um, which has been taking place in some of these, um, some of these camps that people have been um, put into what sort of look like workhouse environments where they're, you know, they're working at, um, you know, sort of light industrial um, factory environments, supposedly um, acquiring skills that will be, you know, of use to them when they leave and, and go on and um, find um, factory employment. And this, this reflects, I mean, some of it's, some of it's kind of ridiculous, you know, the fact that people who have, because of course, some of these people have very good jobs, um, you know, in urban settings and they don't need to be um, trained to use sewing machines or, or what have you. But the party has this basic hostility towards these traditional social environments, such as the Uyghur village, um, mm. which they regard as as impediments to um, the the reach of the um, the party and its ideology, and so on. And so they want to pull people out of these environments and bring them into spaces where they'll have more contact with Chinese language, Chinese media. Um, and, so they want to urbanize them in a sense. Yeah, I mean, you could almost say they want to proletarianize them. Um, hmm. In that sense, yeah. So, um, p- putting people into, and this is, and this connects to the, the, you know, I mean, some of this is connected to the question of the detention centers, but there is this wider program of labor transfer and so on that's been going on for some time, um, to, to take what the state regards as surplus labor out of, um, out of places like southern Xinjiang and send it to, the, the Chinese interior or to the, uh, the north uh, of the region to these, um, urban factory, uh, settings. And that's, and that's also, and that's, that's essentially also mandated. They just tell people they have to go work somewhere else. Look, it's, it's, it, it gets, it's a really difficult question. Um, I've seen evidence that certainly pressure is being applied in this recruitment process. Um, and I think the whole program really as a result, you know, has to be considered somewhat tainted, um, by that by that fact. Now, the question I suppose is, you know, how much of this pressure is direct, you know, pressure that, you know, if you say no, we're going to, you know, detain your family or detain Mm -hmm. you and you got to go. Certainly it's, I think it's definitely the case that local officials, you know, they're given quotas to fill these programs Mm -hmm. and they have a lot of leeway. Um, What goes on, you know, right down at the local level is, you know, often, you know, out of the view of, Mm -hmm. um, officials elsewhere you know i'm not willing to say that every single person in these programs is there against their will though because i think you know for some people in, in the late in the labor programs you mean in the labor programs yeah right. so well you know when when people write reports on these things you know they talk about people who are at risk of you mm-hmm. know modern day slavery or you know potentially well um, i was gonna ask so you hear the terms forced labor even right. slave labor what yeah. is what is actually happening on the ground that that refers to i mean first of all it's not yeah. it's not slave labor in the sense that these people receive wages right they, they, that's they, right yeah they do so yeah. so the question yeah. i guess is how 
the the, the about the word forced, and, yeah. and, it, and it sounds like we're a little unclear. And it sounds like there's there's two different things going on. I mean, they try to they might say incentivize in quotes uh, people who haven't even been in these internment camps to relocate. Uh, yeah. But but in addition to that, the people in the camps, uh, some of yeah. them are receiving vocational training, and the state yeah. tries to direct their vocational path. After they leave, is, is that the other thing that is being referred to when people say forced or, sla- right. or slave labor? Yeah. So there's, um, there does, there does seem to be sort of industrial parks being set up, um, to receive ex-detainees. Um, now, and, do they consist entirely of ex-detainees? I mean, um, I mean, do we know? No, I mean, I think, I mean, I think that the, I mean, the party has been incentivizing, um, factories and industries from the rest of China to relocate to Xinjiang okay. for, for some time. Um, and it's, it's connected to a, uh, a scheme that links particular cities in Xinjiang with provinces elsewhere. Um, and that those provinces there, thereby sort of contribute to these, you know, subsidies, um, mm-hmm. and, and so on. And so, I mean, some of the, um, um, and, and so this is, as I say, this has been going on for some time. Um, it's, I mean, the questions surround questions like, you know, how much freedom do people have to really choose um, in these situations? And when they are, when they do find themselves in these, um, uh, these new factories, you know, do they have, do they have basic freedoms to, you know, to, to decide, you know, they don't mm-hmm. want to work there anymore and go home, um, mm-hmm. for example, that, that kind of thing, because these people are, you know, often, whether that's in Xinjiang or elsewhere in China, they're kept in these compounds that are, um, you know, quite cut off from the, the rest of the workplace. There's, um, it's very hard to really get any, um, you know, have any contact with these people. Um, so it's a way it's, that the state is controlling the environment even after they've left the internment camp per se. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Um, and look, I think that, you know, there's, we have to consider that there's, you know, there are basic sort of economic, um, forms of coercion at work here that, you know, people might decide, well, given my options, this is, you know, mm-hmm. um, may not be great, but it's, you know, I might, yeah. I might make a bit more money than I am at home here. Um, and so on. So I would allow for the possibility that, you know, people, people are certainly signing contracts and so on. And when they go and do these things, um, but there's, I mean, there's still, I think a lot of questions to be asked and, you know, frankly, I hope that the Chinese government will allow people to, to go in and, you know, and get a more precise sense of what's really going on um, in these situations. And, and companies who, are, who are, have any connection to this um, should be asking questions and, you know, and people should be putting pressure on them to, you know, to, 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 to say what they think is going on. Um, and um, I, you know, I, I, because I don't think that, you know, I don't think that people in the West would um, be happy with the idea that they're buying products that are, you know, coming from factories that are, um, mm-hmm. you know, involving this kind of um, abuse. But at the same time, I've heard that when some companies respond to the pressure by ending the use of, say, all cotton from the region. Right. That winds up hurting yep. workers in a broader way without a sure. plot, uh, but I, but I don't know. Um, yeah, look, I'm I'm skeptical of the benefit of any kind of blanket trade embargo on on mm-hmm. Xinjiang or anything like that. And I, I mean, I you know clearly, I mean there are there's questions of um, you know corporate social responsibility in play here. 
But there's also a wider discussion going on about the application of sanctions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that I'm much more skeptical of um, in terms of decisions by governments um, mm-hmm. in the West to just sort of ban um, products from, from this or that region. And yet, because we know that there's, you know, there's no evidence when we look at the history that these kind of measures have really done anything to help vulnerable populations. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm much more interested in, you know, avenues that we can continue to um, put pressure on companies and the authorities in China to, 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 you know, if, if, if everything's great and everyone there is there sort of, you know, voluntarily like, well, that's fantastic. Like, let's mm-hmm. just make sure that's the case and, you know, provide us with the evidence. Okay. So what about numbers? I've heard a range of estimates in terms of how many Uyghurs have been put in these camps. And mm. I've, I've also heard, I mean, from, uh, in some cases, there may be uh, these, you could call these people defenders of the Chinese government. In other cases, they're just kind of skeptics of, mm. of, of certain kinds of numbers. But uh, I've, I've heard the claim that there is a lot of reliance on a single source, a guy named Adrian Zenz. I'm sure you've heard mm. the name. He's collected mm. a lot of the data. You know, he's at a think tank called the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, you know, which, as sure. his critics point out, suggests that maybe, mm. um, you know, he has a he has a certain ideology. Then again, everybody mm. does. Um, mm. What do you I mean, again, his estimates are at the high end. Uh, of the, I mean, so you tell me, what do you make of all this? Do you think, what is the range? Mm. Uh, how, how many, I mean, first of all, how many Uyghurs are there in Xinjiang? Right. And then how many do you think have been, uh, put in these camps? And what do you have to say mm. about the whole question of the reliability of the data, whether we're unduly yeah. reliant on one source or what? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's about a, about 11 million. Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So that's around about 40% of the population now. Um, this whole question of putting a figure on the, the, the number of detainees has been, it's really been at the center of the discussion for a long time. And in some ways, I feel that it's unfortunate that, you know, we went so early on to this question of, you know, how many exactly people came out with these estimates. Um, and then, of course, that's where the, the debate centered, right? Um, so, um, I mean, I have, you know, big political differences with Adrian Zenz on all sorts of questions. And I, you know, um, and I think it's unfortunate in some ways that he has, um, you yeah, know, he's become really a lightning rod of criticism, partly just because of who he is and what he, what he stands for, um, in terms of his, you know, political and religious views. Um, but it's not the case that Adrian Zenz is the only person, um, putting forward, um, you know, information on this, um, on this question. Now it is the case that any estimate of the number of detainees involves a certain amount of extrapolation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's involved and there's been various methods applied to, to do that. Adrian Zenz is in fact not really at the, um, you know, the higher end of the estimates. Mm. I mean, I think he's sort of floated around between one and one and a half million. I've, you know, I've heard estimates much, much higher than that. Are there, are there many, are there credible estimates that are lower? Um, no, I mean, the, the estimates, I mean, for example, there's been a, um, you know, there's been a, an effort in, um, by certain, um, 
advocates to to collect testimony. Um, this is the the Xinjiang victims database. Um, mm-hmm. That's um, and they have generally on their website they have stuck to figure of you know hundreds of thousands up to a million. Um, and generally, when I'm talking, that's you know that's where I if I have to you know give an estimate, but you know it's it's we shouldn't really imagine that we would be able to give a you know a precise estimate it's like asking you know in 1937 how many people has stalin um arrested um china has never come out and said um how many people have gone through the camps they have said that over the last i think 7 8 years or so there's been you know millions of people have received forms of political reeducation but that can include you know stuff that just goes on at your workplace or whatever. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily give us a sense exactly of how many people have been through this. And as I was saying, the high point of this detention campaign has possibly passed. So I would imagine that, you know, I don't think there are a lot of new detainees going in. What we need to be aware of, um, though, is that there's been this surge of incarcerations through the formal criminal justice system as well at the same time. And I think as we're looking forward, that in fact is going to be the thing that, that hangs around because people are receiving, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in you, prison. You mean in, for, in Xinjiang in particular, as opposed to yeah, in China broadly. And, and you think has, some of these are, they are actually in jail because there's uh there's suspicion of um, separatist yeah, or terrorist. I, I think that they've been identified as a category of, you know, people who require firmer measures. Um, some of these people have spent time in the detention camps and then gone into, um, gone into prison. And we have a little bit of documentation for the kinds of cases that are, that are going on. I've seen one set of documents about a guy who was given 10 year sentence simply for encouraging his workmates to um, to pray, to be, you know, to practice their religion. Otherwise they would end up like the Chinese, right? And the fact that he used this comparison with Chinese was, you know, he was, you know, convicted for inciting, you know, ethnic animosity. Mm-hmm. Um, he got 10 years. There was a guy in the detention camps who, um, you know, snuck off and prayed in an empty room. He was, you know, discovered and he, um, you know, he was put in prison. Um, for that as as well. So, I mean, this is something that I find particularly troubling. Um, the um, because this is going to require you know efforts to release and rehabilitate these people for there to be any kind of justice, um, and um, and that's going to be a long uh, and difficult um, effort. Do you think uh, it is if it has passed its peak? Is that partly in response to external pressure, or do you just think the government had the plan from the beginning? We're going to identify this category of people, and yeah, that's a really great question. Um, And I, the honest answer is, it's very hard for us to ever say, you know, what connection external advocacy has to shifts in policy inside Mm -hmm. uh, inside China. Now, I do think that they were discomforted by the response. I think that they expected that people would just say, oh, well, you know, China's doing de-radicalization. We're doing de-radicalization too, you know, um, good luck to them. Um, that's, you know, certainly hasn't been the response. And it obviously requires resources and effort to constantly defend yourself uh, internationally when they'd rather be doing, uh, rather be doing other things. And it, there has been a little bit of criticism from Chinese academics in the last couple of weeks. I saw there was a report in the South China Morning Post um, of some academics saying that, you know, officials have 
it was a sort of a typical thing. You know, the policy is basically sound, but local officials on the ground have made a mess of things. Um, and, um, and that was, you know, that was new. Um, I hadn't really heard that kind of talk. And so there may be some shift underway to, um, uh, to, to revise or, um, you know, redress some of the, um, you know, some of the more egregious, um, abuses going on. We can, we can only hope that that's the case. Um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, I think China is pretty resolute in its determination to resolve what it sees as the, the problems here in its favor. Um, because it has big plans for Xinjiang to internationalize, to, to sort of be a, a hub for, you know, economic expansion, um, through continental, um, Eurasia, uh, and so on. And, um, it, it really holds all the cards. And, um, it's, um, I don't see a huge sign that there's, um, you know, the kind of real rethinking of, um, the, the, the guiding philosophy and so on that we would like to see. Um, I don't, I don't see much sign of that's, that's taking place. And of course, you know, China's not isolated on this issue. It has been able to mobilize international support for its position. You know, it's, it's, it's being hammered by Western nations and a few others like Japan and so on, but it, you know, it has been able to respond, um, by applying, uh, like using the, economic like leverage, partly by using economic I mean, partly leverage. Partly by using right? economic leverage. I think, you know, there's a lot of countries out there that actually share China's desire to, um, you know, to prevent foreign countries, you know, looking too closely at their domestic affairs. And I think that there's also a lot of countries that are just skeptical when a place like the United States raises the banner of human rights. Um, you know, a lot of countries have, have seen, you know, where that can lead in the past. Um, and are just, just sort of, you mean like you know, invasion or bombing or yeah, what? Yeah. 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 I mean, the, 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 the instrumentalization of human rights issues for, you know, America's geopolitical ends is a reality. Um, and a lot of people around the world can see that. And I, and I think that that's why, you know, when we talk about this issue, it's really important that we try as far as we can to separate, you know, advocacy and our response to this, you know, which is, it's a, it's a situation of racism. It's a situation of discrimination, separate that from, you know, the wider field of U.S.-China rivalry, which is, you know, is all caught up with geopolitical interests. And um, and and that's not an environment that's going to be conducive, I think, ultimately to, you know, pursuing justice and um, for, for, for victims, you know, for, for minority groups in vulnerable positions in, in China. Okay. So I know you got to run and, and yeah. I, re- I regret that. Uh, I, I want to try to squeeze in because uh, I, I could I could keep talking about this. I want to sure. squeeze in one more uh question um i mean first i should say i think you've got a book coming out before long called china panic which perhaps is related to what you just said which is uh i mean you tell me before i get to my final question you want to say anything about that book oh look i mean it's a it's a critique of the direction of australian policy uh on china in the context of this u.s china rivalry but it's also you know it's written from a progressive viewpoint that's that you know wants to find a way that we can stand up you know, for people who are suffering um, repression in China and, um, you know, support the democratic rights of people in Hong Kong and so on without buying into this, um, this idea of a new Cold War between the, um, the US and China. That's, that's basically what the book is, uh, book is about. Um, okay, great. Yeah. And that's coming out when? Uh, it'll be out in a couple of weeks, um, published okay. by Black Ink here in Australia. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, I'd be delighted if, um, if listeners or viewers in America had an interest in the situation here or the U.S.-China 
politics more generally. There's a chapter on Hong Kong and chapter on Xinjiang um, in the book as well. Great. So the final question I wanted to squeeze in was, do you think uh, the Chinese, well, if you have time for two, my two burning questions are, do you think the Chinese government wants to actually extinguish the Uyghur language or they just want what they consider culturally assimilated bilingual uh, people? That's the one question. And and the other question was going to be like how this is perceived by the Chinese population broadly, I'm guessing there's a fair amount of tolerance for the policy, but maybe right. I'm wrong in the Chinese population. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, I mean, I think the party is basically indifferent to the future of the Uyghur language. Um, I, I think that it would, um, you know, it, it's, it's place publicly, you know, there are, I've seen photos of signs that were bilingual or the Uyghur text removed. I, you know, there are technically laws that, signs need to have both languages, but I don't think anyone is enforcing that um, these days. And um, I think they'd be happy for Uyghur to sort of end up as a kitchen language, um, you know, where people could, um, you know, have a, you know, chit chat with their family and so on, but would not. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the transmission of high level literacy, you know, in terms of reading and writing and, you know, academic discourse and, um, you know, scientific publications and so on in Uyghur, that's the kind of thing where <clears throat> I think there are question marks about its, um, its, uh, its, its survival. Okay. Um, the, uh, I'm sorry, what was the oh, second it was, question? It was, uh, <laughs> is it the case that, the Chinese, oh, population the Chinese population pretty broadly is fine oh, with look, the government's policy yeah, here. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's a certain, I mean, there's just a, a, there's actually not a high level of knowledge really elsewhere in China about what's going on because it hasn't been, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it hasn't been reported widely. You know, it hasn't been. Now, I think that now China is, you know, responding, talking back to the Western media on these issues. I think that that is contributing to people, you know, gaining an awareness that there's something something going on. And I think that people will respond to that, you know, in light of their general, you know, stance towards um, the party. I mean, people who are skeptical may well be inclined to develop a certain sympathy for um, the the victims of this policy. People who, um, you know, people, there, there is a, you know, there is a level of, um, uh, there's a, a level of sort of, um, popular uh, racism towards, um, you know, Muslim um, Turkey-speaking groups in, in, in Xinjiang that, that could certainly, um, you know, sustain support for, for these kinds of policies. Um, there have been these interesting episodes, though. There was, um, you know, the, the app um, Chat House a couple of weeks ago when it was, um, it was accessible from China for... Um, for a brief window. And there was, a, you know, there was some interesting dialogues taking place there between Chinese people inside China and, um, and Uyghurs and Chinese outside China. Now that's not necessarily representative um, of public opinion in, in China, but there was a quite a lot of, um, you know, sympathy and regret being expressed by mm-hmm. um, Chinese people there. And I think that that's, you know, that, that's another reason why when we, when we talk about this issue in a place like Australia or the US, we need to really make clear that this is about, you know, our concern around this kind of thing is about a concern for justice for all, not about a campaign to contain China's rise, because we have the opportunity, of course, to talk to a lot of people from China, you know, in our societies, in our midst that, you know, in ways that are very difficult for us to, you know, 
do in China itself. Like we can't talk to um, people directly in China very easily about this issue, but there are Chinese people out there um, in these societies who are, who are willing to listen. Um, and, mm. you know, as someone who works at a university with a lot of Chinese students, that's something that I, um, yeah. I've been trying to do myself um, over the last couple of years. Yeah. So, I mean, engagement, I mean, I mean, of course, the, the Chinese government is famously not transparent, but engagement yeah. with China brings a certain amount of transparency. Right. I mean, I mean, a certain kind. Does that, I mean, uh, I mean, that, as long as, I mean, as long as people don't sort of, um, you know, sort of drop the issue or go quiet on it for the sake of, um, for the sake of engagement, which of course is the, the sort of, the oh, critique right, 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 that, um, right. you know, um, but yeah, I don't see the, you know, there are people out there, of course, now who say we need to decouple from China. Mm-hmm. We need to cut our ties, you know, across, across the board and so on. And I, I don't think, I don't think that's going to help anyone. I, yeah. I think that that plays into the hands of, um, yeah. of hardliners and cold warriors on both sides of this, um, yeah. um, on both sides of this confrontation. Yeah. Um, what I meant was that the informal channels of communication that right. result from, say, scientific collaboration and so on in sure. a, in a subtle way can yeah. give us a clearer idea of what's going on inside the, the country. But you're Definitely. right that there is yeah. the, the opposite danger, um, of people for the sake of engagement. Uh, declining to uh, say anything sure. or even be yeah. inquisitive about yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So I appreciate your, I know this is uh, past your, uh, your kind of deadline for uh, actually ending the conversation. I appreciate you sticking right. around. This, this has been very illuminating. So uh, your existing book is called Uyghur Nation, which I'm mm. sure provides a, a certain kind of background uh, mm. for this uh, from Harvard University Press. Mm. And then, uh, and then you've got the book uh, China Panic, which which has uh, a chapter on this very subject coming out within, uh, uh, well, probably within a week of when this will actually post, I, I would yeah. guess. So yeah. uh, people can pre-order. Um, all right. Well, thank, thanks so much, David. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. I enjoyed the conversation.